Scary Girl. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And, and this, this is... Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I talk about ghost stories, true crime, mysteries, cults, conspiracies, the supernatural, paranormal, or even just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about that week. Why is that, Sarah? Uh, that's because it's our show and it's not yours. If it's your first time listening to the show, Stop. turn it off and start Go from back the, to beginning. the beginning. Episode one. Grumblethorpe in my mouth. And then a let us bit. know when you catch up. Thank you. Ooh. Welcome back 152 episodes later because this one is gonna be wild. We are doing this is you know what? We thought 2020 was wild, but 2021 is the year of wild stories. We've been knocking oh it out gosh. of the park. I think. It's been crazy. The world's crazy. I feel like I don't. Do you have what are you? Do you have banter this? The week? only thing I have is kind of a fun announcement to a degree. Um, we are officially in a paranormality podcast directory website, and if you follow us on Twitter, you might have noticed that we posted a link to go and vote for us, and they're like top twenty-five paranormal podcasts. So go follow us on Twitter first and foremost. Secondly, go find that link. Go please nominate us if you like us because we are 153 episodes in and we would love to gain some new followers. Do it, man. That would be great. But now, now we're in this really cool podcast directory and I was scrolling through it and there are a lot of our other favorites that are on this directory, Three Spooked Girls, uh, etc., so if you're also in the market for some other paranormal shows, this is a wonderful directory for it. And that's I love it. That. That's, that's my awesome. banter. That's some like new and vote for us. Yeah. stuff. Yeah, vote vote for us. Dead time stories for president. Dead time oh, could you imagine? <laughs> Our we'd get nothing done. Um you and I have both uh, recently become obsessed with people we follow on Instagram that make uh, polymer clay jewelry. Yes. Yes. And I'm wearing these um, barbed wire hoops. I saw that were custom made for me by Gracious Rebel Designs. They're cute as hell. Yeah. She makes them as like regular earrings and I got them without posts and there's just a little hole so I can take them out of my ear. Just slip them out. But I have these like cool like black barbed wire hoops that I'm wearing. I love it. And I like them. And I didn't realize this was like soft. Huh? The polymer clay, it's like, I don't know, it's softer than I imagine. And it's very light. It's mm-hmm. neat. I like it. Uh, yeah, 2021 is the year of going out and supporting your local artisans. So if you don't have some local artisans that you support, reach out to us and we'll give you some. Oh, my God, for real, though. I'm all about discovering some local, especially local, like Philly art. Yeah, we artisans, have a lot of Philly artists. Are, right? I'm like, there are people all over that I'm buying cool shit from that and... they're making shit at their house. If you're a Philly artist or honestly if you're if you're an artisan, reach out to us. We'll promo your shit. Yeah, man. We'd love to. Let's see some of your cool wares, man. We're into it. People supporting I'm people. So artists supporting artists. I'm shit, here. yeah. I'm into that. I love that. Already this episode is starting out on such a lighter note than last week. I just got to say. <laughs> Last week we were like, we'll bring white, it around. White people are awful, and we've been awful for a really long time. Here's a story about a white couple that murdered their kids. 
This week, oh, we're like, let's support local artists. Look at my cute earrings. My story's going to be kind of fun. Uh, mine's not, so yay. <laughs> Mine is. Thanks, Stephanie. And I bought a book. I recently bought a book. She's so like excited, a physical y'all. book. She's holding it in her hand right now. You can't see it because it's an audio podcast, but... It's true, but it's called You Were Born for This, Astrology for Radical Self-Acceptance by Chani Nichols. It might be Chani. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I'm reading um, Star Wars. exciting. You're reading what? Star Wars. Yes, Star Wars. Charlie got it for me, and it's Star Wars Heir to the Empire by Timothy Zahn, and it's See, I was going to ask, yeah, if it was, like, just one of, like, the Star Wars canon novels or... Yes. Yeah, it's just part of the canon. Honestly, I'm, like, almost halfway through it, really digging it. There's my I love it. If y'all didn't know that Sarah was a Star Wars nerd... Then you don't know me. I love it. It's so endearing. That's right. Then you don't know her, because she is. It's tattooed on my body, and I'm in the works to get another one. (laughs) Yes, Another Star Wars tattoo. (laughs) I love that was it, especially y'all. why the meme I sent you with the plants and Kylo Ren was like particularly funny to me. It was like, uh, more! Was get plant. me more plants! More plants! I loved it. And Stephanie so sent that to me today, and um, I bought a plant today, too. And Sarah was like, I just bought another plant. <laughs> <laughs> I love that for you. I love it, too, but I'm also starting to run out of space. But that's also why I take them to my office. But I'm I was running say, out of space in my office. My office. I, I just have one plant in my office currently, but I would like to put more in there because I have a really nice windowsill. Charlie has a lot of jade cuttings we can give you, and those are really good office plants. We'll talk oh, about this that. off air. We will. We will. But that's our banter. Okay, get over it. Done. Over it. Let's talk about murder, death, ghosts, farts. Uh, I love it. Hey, Ghost Sarah. Farts. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Leslie. Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Well, are you? Cause are I you, am. Sarah? Because you're going first. I am. And I'm talking okay, about good. some ghosts. Do it. Ooh. So after last week's very heavy debacle, uh, hour and a half long episode, this week I said, I got to take a step back and let's get back to our roots. So I got a Philly ghost story. Yes. And if you're just tuning in and you didn't listen to us and you didn't go back to the beginning, then you didn't hear our mission statement, which was that we were going to do Philly local ghost stories that quickly expanded. But yes, we we like to do that. We do like to do that. So I'm taking it back and... We're in Philly, if you didn't know because you didn't listen. Yeah. Can you please go back to the beginning? Not of this episode, of the show. Like, of the show. Episode one. Thank you. This week we're talking about the Moshulu. That ship down oh, off of Penn's Oh, the ship Landing. restaurant. That ship is haunted. Tell me about that haunted ass ship. That haunted ass shit. So the Mashulu is a, I did not know this in doing the research, but it is the largest four-masted sailing ship remaining, floating, like, in the water, in the entire world. What? I know! I was like, really? 
I had no idea. I knew that it obviously had some historical significance. They're not just going to put any old ship in, you know, I mean, there. I, I just thought it was in the old ship. <laughs> I just thought it was a ship they turned into a restaurant. No, I knew that it had some historical, but I did not know that it was the largest, oldest remaining in the whole world. That's How pretty cool. It? it was built in 1904, so Homegirl is now 117. Yeah, we're in 21, 117 years old. So wow, she's coming up on it. Uh, she was originally built in Glasgow, Scotland. In 1904, and the Moshulu was originally named Kurt. Stop. Just Kurt? Kurt. Kurt the ship. Kurt the ship. K-U-R-T, Kurt. (laughs) Just Kurt. I found that funny. That's so unglamorous. It really is. Well, honestly, it wasn't built to be a glamorous ship, even though she is. She's got like a mermaid carved into the wood on the front. She's just the built mast. to be Kurt. I was just Kurt. Who's that coming over the hill? Oh, it's Kurt. That's Kurt. That's Kurt. But Kurt was uh, built in the beginning from 1904 to 1914. So for its first decade, it shipped coal just all around to the neighboring countries and continents. Okay, that was her deal. In World War One, it went through a few channels and ultimately was seized by the United States in 1917. And that's when it was renamed the Moshulu, renamed by the first lady at the time, Edith Wilson, wife to all Woodrow right. Wilson. So she named it the Moshulu, and the Moshulu is a, a word from a, the Senecan Indian tribe, and it means fearless. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It has a long and storied history that I'm not going to totally get into, but at one point it was seized by the Nazi party, gutted, and used to transport weapons and machinery. Until it was ultimately what? taken back by the Americans. It has a crazy history. I just didn't the have time fuck? to get into all of it because we're here to talk about ghosts. But yeah, it did some cool stuff before it turned into a restaurant and nightclub. And now it's just a restaurant? That's so weird. And a nightclub. Honestly, and a nightclub. it's weird to me because when I think of the Moshulu, I think of the one and only time I've been there and I got wasted. And I think of the fact that every other time I've been by that ship is like a Saturday night. And that place is a fucking club. It's a club. It's like a party club. It's funny because I don't think I've ever seen it at nighttime. Like I used to live, remember I used to live on South Street. Mm -hmm. And I would like walk down to, to like the pier and over that area, what is that fucking area called? It's Penn's Landing. Landing, something like, Penn's Landing. Thank you. Oh my God. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I used to see it then, and then one time me and Val were going to Jersey, and we got breakfast, and sat, before we left for Jersey, we sat in the parking lot of the Mushulu and ate our breakfast before we got on the road to, like, go to the farmer's market. So I've never actually seen people there. Oh, okay, yeah. So I, my first experience with it was when I first, first moved here, and me and the person that I moved here with, it was like a random day, and we just walked up, and we sat at the bar. Um, And it was cool. It's really pretty inside. They've, you know, totally taken the time, and we'll find out why they recently did renovations, 
but it was nice. And then in the past, like I said, I've walked by at night on a Saturday night. And one day I remember walking by and being like, oh, you know what? Fuck it. I'll go in and get a drink at the Moshulu. And I walked up and the guy standing there was like $20 cover. And I said, fuck no. Get the fuck out of here. Hell no. Sorry, Moshulu. That's a Moshu don't. I'm not spending 20 bucks just to get in the door. No, thank you. So this, at one point in time, wartime vessel, the largest four-masted ship remaining in the world, gets crunk on the weekends. She do. Party. So that's the Moshulu. In 1970 is when it was purchased by the American Specialty Restaurants Corporation, who then took it, refitted it to be a restaurant. And so they all of the masts, the wiring or not wiring, but all of the masts, the yarding, etc., that would be functional in a ship if it was actually being used is not is all fake. So like it's not actually functional masts, etc. It's just outfitted to look that way and then be a cool restaurant. Uh, they towed her to the Penn's Landing waterfront, which is where she continues to sit to this day. Yes. During its time as an active ship, it is known that 28 people have died on board the ship. What? Causes, I'm sure all kinds of ways. Yeah, I'm like, all kinds of ways. It's a ship. I'm honestly surprised that so many people were able to travel via ship because I feel like if you got on the ship, there was a one in four chance that you were never getting off of that ship or you were getting off of there in a body bag because you were just going to die. Was it really that high? That's what I feel. Or is that like your assumption? That's my assumption because every story that I cover is like, here was a ship and these people died on the ship. I mean, if you think about it, you're stuck on this boat in the middle I mean, of the ocean. For weeks to months at a time. For weeks to months at a time. If one of you is sick, all y'all gonna get sick. It's a COVID breeding ground up in there. We all gonna die. That's my assumption. It's probably not true. That is probably a really high number, but you you won't catch me. Honestly, though, I wouldn't be if I, if <laughs> it sounds believable. Uh, let's go with it. We have a podcast. Let's go with it. We'll pretend it's real. Let's say 25% of people who got on any ship like that died. We just have ship. to say it with complete commitment to what we're saying and belief in it and say it loud enough and over and over enough. And it basically means it's true because like- It becomes it's true. It becomes true, right? If we just keep saying it, it over and over. I mean, isn't that what Joe Rogan does with his podcast with his opinions that he presents as facts? <laughs> Isn't that just, yeah, isn't that just what... If he can do it, I can do it. Why is he so great? Why is his podcast always number one? Have you listened to it? It's not that good. No, Colleen likes him, doesn't she? (laughs) I'm sorry, Colleen. Oh, my roommate loves him. I listen to him listening to Joe Rogan every morning. And I'm like, I wish you wouldn't. And you're like, why? Why? Uh, Anyways, back to the Moshulu. 28 people died on board throughout its time as an active ship. And then in May of 2000, I just learned about this today. In May of 2000, there is a pier next to the Moshulu called Pier 54. And that's another dancing club type of bar on a pier. But it is connected to the Moshulu through the Moshulu's ballroom, right? 
So it's not originally part of the original ship, but now it's connected. In May of 2000, that pier on 8 o'clock on a Saturday night collapsed and fell into the water. God! Taking everyone on that pier down with it. And the pier had a canvas tent cover over the top. That came down too, effectively like like, trapping the people underneath it. Yep. Oh my God. Yes. That's horrible. 43. That's horrible. 43 people were injured. Three women died. All under the age of like 30. Holy shit. That is a literal nightmare. It was. And when I started looking into that, I said, oh my God, this could be a story on its own because of the lawsuits that ensued afterward and the different coding like codes that had to be enforced and created for the future to ensure that something like this doesn't happen again because that's not the only party peer that's out there around the pens landing area there's like a few of them morgan's pier is another one i've been out there shit if that thing went down in the water i'm i could be dead it's crazy anyways we've had a total of 31 deaths on or near the ship. So now it's haunted. It's got some ghosts. Naturally. Natch. So another history piece is that in 1989, a fire broke out in the interior of the ship that just completely gutted the inside, and they ultimately spent $11 million re-renovating and redoing the whole space, which is why it is really nice today. Yeah. But because of this, there are major fire safety precautions in place because they do have open flames from lanterns and candles and whatnot because you're on a ship. Ambiance. But they've got these, you know, things in place. There are 52 lanterns throughout the entire ship with one on each table for the evening dining. So, of course, at the end of the night, the waiters and the staff have been trained in how to effectively put out every single lantern, make sure that it's like separate on its own so that it can't potentially catch fire. It's known, and it happens apparently pretty frequently, that the staff will blow out all of those lanterns and the next day the staff will come in and two or three of them will be lit. Flame burning. Yeah. They also, some, um, they call this ghost the lantern ghost. So they're like, oh, lantern ghost has been here. Natch. We got visited by the lantern ghost again. The spotted lantern ghost. (laughs) They say if you see it, you should squish it because it's an invasive ghost. If you see a spotted lantern ghost, you squish it. Like, you can't let them spread. You squish it and sage it. You cannot let that ghost spread. Because some workers have even claimed to watch a candle light on its own. So the spotted lantern ghost, they have no shame. They are they will do it right in front of you. Like a spotted lantern fly who will fly into You go your to open blow mouth. it out and like right when you get up to it, it like flutters over <laughs> to, to another, another candle. And you're like, God damn it. Fucking spotted lantern ghost. <laughs> He's spotted lantern ghost. That's true. No, that's it. It's a spotted lantern ghost. The worst kind. I hate it. I hate it. Well, get ready for the next one. The next ghost is the whispering ghost. No. Mm-hmm. And apparently in the early evening, 
you'll just hear an unintelligible murmuring and whispering, always like it's Don't right tell behind me there's you. There's a screaming lady on here too. There's not a screaming lady, but the next ghost is the laughing ghost. No! <laughs> and I don't know what's worse. I hate them both. Workers claim to have heard hysterical laughing coming from down the hall. No, but that is no fucking scary. Right? I don't like it. Honestly, any sort of a noise that isn't you just talking to me like a regular person, I'm not here for. I don't want to hear a moan. I don't want to hear a whisper. I definitely like, don't want to hear. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Hey, welcome to Chili's. <laughs> that I could handle. But if it was like, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Hey, welcome to Chili's. <laughs> I'd be like, nope. And then the candle lights up by itself. <gasps> I would be jumping off of that ship into the water. Oh I wouldn't God, even go I down can't. the exit ramp. I would be like, I'm out. You'd be like, Mashulu better get out of my way. Mushu leap off of this bill. <laughs> off of the ship. <laughs> Mush you leave, I must. I really must. I really must. This ghost really just came must. up and laughed in my face. I got to go, girl. I gotta go. I'm getting the fuck out of here. So the Mashulu yeah, is still man. a restaurant. I think it is back to open at like minimal capacity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it mm-hmm. is a spot featured on the historic Philly ghost tours. So if you take a Philly ghost tour, you'll probably walk by the Moshulu and hear about the lantern ghost, the whispering ghost, and the laughing ghost. And yeah, that's my okay. story that's of the wild. Moshulu. And I'm Moshulutely sticking to it. That was a stretch. <laughs> That was a stretch. On that note, Stephanie, what are you talking about this week? Because I know you're V excited and I'm V excited to hear it. First, I'm going to start by asking you, Sarah, what do you know about the Menendez brothers? (sighs) Whoo, girl. I know a a fair amount, not enough to do details or timeline, but I know that they killed their parents. And I know that they allege that they were molested. Right. So there are two two theories, right? Which there's the prosecution story and there's the defense story. So when it comes to the Menendez brothers, we've got the two brothers. The older brother is Lyle. The younger brother is Eric. And this was like the trial of the century before all the other trials of the century, right? It was. Because they were like upstanding upper middle class family they were rich they were very wealthy yeah two good looking boys who had like everything ahead of them and then people were like there's no way these two could have just murdered their parents yes so they were also i didn't realize how young they were so they were 18 and 21 at the time yeah i think i knew that yes And also, I think the way that the case was treated is very much a product of the time. Like, I think that the way the case was handled then versus how it would be handled now, I also have feelings about, I think that they would be treated differently if they were women and they had the story that they had. Ooh. 
So this case was a big deal at the time. It's still kind of a big deal. People are still talking about it. There's tons of books. And people are renewed in their interest about this case. And we'll get to that as well. I was going to say, aren't they like up for acquittal or something coming up soon? Or maybe I'm making that up. Um, they've tried to appeal many, many, many times. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that. Okay. Okay. I don't want to jump the gun. No, it's totally okay. So I wanted to start with all of that, right? And there was never any dis- dispute as to did the Menendez brothers kill their parents? Yes. Undoubtedly, the Menendez, bro- uh, Menendez brothers killed their parents. So the two main theories, there's the Menendez brothers were spoiled sociopaths who killed their parents for their wealth. The other theory is the Menendez brothers were victims of years of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, which ultimately led them to kill their abusers. And people are very much like kind of in one camp or the other, right? Where they're like, it's all bullshit. They made that up to explain their behavior. And there are people who are like, I don't know, like... It sounds legit. Where are you? So where do we start? I was like, are we going to get into what camp we're in right now? Or I want to get started in the story before I give my opinion. Okay. Because I I didn't have an opinion going into it. I was kind of like, I know I know this much about it, but I've never like looked into it as a grown adult and formed an opinion. But I have now that I've looked into it. And my expertise as a person who hosts a podcast. <laughs> We're experts. People pay us. I, I have a, a professional opinion. I wonder so, if what you're going to tell me is going to change my opinion or not. Yeah. Do you have an opinion? Or I are do. you also like, mm, No, I do. do I do opinion? have an opinion. I was like, I've listened and I, I've like watched enough Dateline and series and stuff about the brothers to I have an opinion, but it might change if new That's information good, yeah. comes out. But you tell me. But right now, I um, I I have as much of an opinion about it as I do with the fact that I believe John Bonet's brother killed her. So you have a very strong opinion. It's pretty strong. So is mine. <laughs> but I have a feeling that we're on the that we're of the same opinion. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. 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 So let's talk a little bit about what happened before, right? So who were the victims? The victims were their father and their mother, Jose Menendez, and his wife, Kitty. Her name was Mary, but she went by Kitty Menendez. Jose Menendez was born in 1944 in Havana, Cuba. His parents were both professional athletes. They were very wealthy. He was their only son. He did have a few sisters, but he wasn't an only child, but the only boy. So he was raised to be, like, very tough. He had people talked a lot about his machismo, right? Um, He was very, like, very built into his masculinity and being tough to the point of, like, he was a bully. Um, Multiple people referred to him as such. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, his family was run out of Cuba by Fidel Castro in 1960. He was 16 years old when they immigrated to the United States. And it was a huge wake-up call for him because they went from being, like, a really wealthy, like, well-to-do family in Cuba Mm -hmm. to being, like, Cuban immigrants in Illinois. And it was a a huge drop, basically, in the social spectrum. So that had a lot to do with, like, how Jose kind of, like, represented himself. Like, he was really... 
going to go for the American dream and he was going to have it all. He was going to have the right job, the right wife, the right family. And his appearance and the family's appearance was all very, very important. Like the, the facade of what the Menendez family like looked like to other people. Kitty and Jose uh, met in college. They got married in 1963 and both of them were very like, just very concerned with their outward appearances, right? Like both of them were very good looking and both of them were very like social and wanted to be like really important with high social status. That was important for both of them. That was something that they shared. <laughs> so like Ultimately, they would have been part of the real housewives of if they had been oh, given absolutely. a chance. So Keeping up with the Menendezes, that might have happened. Y'all. He was a yes. He was making enough money that he told Kitty that she wasn't going to work anymore. She was going to be a housewife and a stay-at-home mom. And she was like, sure, why not? So they had their first son, Joseph Lyle Menendez, who goes by Lyle. He was born January 10th, 1968. And Eric was born November 27th, 1970. Kitty, like I said, stayed at home to raise the kids, and they were growing up in Princeton until 1986 when Jose's corporate executive career took off and they moved the family out to Beverly Hills. A lot of people, they kept referring to him as a Hollywood executive, but I was trying to find anything that he was involved with in Hollywood. He does have an IMDb page, and he was one of the producers of Pound Paws and The Legend of Big Paw. Or Pound Puppies and the Legend of Big Paw. That's okay. his only credit that I could find. All right. So he was incredibly successful financially, but he was also kind of infamous as a ruthless businessman. He didn't have a lot of close friends, but he had colleagues and employees that said he could be incredibly charming, but also like very difficult to work with. So as his wealth and power grew, he got worse. Jose was chasing the American dream, as I mentioned earlier, and his sons were very much part of that. They were his prized possessions, basically, and that helped him focus on the family's image. So they were really concerned about their sons being good athletes, being good at school, so much so that the parents actually did their homework for them. And a lot of times they did shitty on their tests because they weren't actually doing their homework. Their parents were doing their homework. Yeah. Um, in an effort to make them look like they were really, really good at everything. Mm-hmm. They sure. also uh, participated in tennis. They were both athletes who were doing very well. Lyle actually was like set to use a tennis scholarship as part of getting into Princeton University. They were both really, really great athletes and they were spoiled financially. But things started to get pretty they started to get pretty rough as they got to be older and they weren't behaving so much. So Lyle actually started committing little like breaking and enterings with other affluent friends and it was just kind of like for fun. Obviously, they didn't need anything. They were all super rich. They're all rich. This was just... They're just out doing shenanigans because they think they can get like, away with Right, it. like for the brush of it. Correct. Just go TP a house. You don't have to break in. Yeah. He began taking Eric with him as well, uh, and eventually they were caught. Jose paid each of the families that they had stolen from. Anything that they had stolen was returned. And at home, they said that he was more upset about them being caught than about them actually committing crimes. Because 
people were going to know and like bring shame on the family. um, And it was going to make them look really, really bad. Right. Dishonor. Ultimately, the boys were given uh, probation and they didn't serve any time. But this was very eye opening to their parents as to kind of like how they had raised these boys to be. Mm-hmm. They were probably like, very Ooh, we made a huge mistake. Girl. Lyle got into Princeton with very mediocre grades as a tennis star and with a large donation from Jose. He became a bit of a playboy. He was dating lots of different women. Um, some of them were like notable, like famous women, like some like models. He was spending tons of money. And like his dad, he was very charismatic or he could be, but he could be heated and manipulative as well. Ultimately, he flunked out of Princeton. He also was balding very prematurely. At this time, he was only 20, 21. And he said that Jose made him wear a wig, like, to to hide the fact that he was balding because he didn't want people to know that about his son. Mm-hmm. Eric was a little more quiet, but somewhat flamboyant. Jose often accused him of being gay. He, uh, he tried to get work as a model for some time. And remember, this was the late 80s, so this was the height of the AIDS crisis. It was a very anti-gay culture. So... It, the idea that Eric was gay was very, like, shameful. It would be another thing to, like, hold against him and to hide so that people didn't know that about the Menendez family. Mm-hmm. So um, a year before what happened happened, Eric actually co-wrote a screenplay with a friend of his about a man killing his parents for the insurance money. You mean he wrote a manifesto <laughs> in the layout of a screenplay so the idea that jose was abusive was not shocking to anyone a lot of people had worked with him and said that he was like really awful and and shitty um including his wife his wife uh had a drinking problem she was on many 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 prescription pills that she abused and she depending on you know kind of the the narrative right that you believe Mm -hmm. she like she was aware of what was going on and really didn't do anything to stop it. This was like her just kind of numbing herself to everything that was going on because she as well was being abused by Jose. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jose was having multiple affairs, including an eight year relationship with a woman in New York, as well as hiring many sex workers. There were incredibly toxic relationships all around and Kitty and Jose, the family was imploding. Kitty and Jose were actively looking to take the boys out of their will. And the boys probably were aware of that. Mm-hmm. One night, uh, Lyle and Kitty were having a really heated argument. This is in August of 1989. She began to get physical, slapping and punching at him. Ultimately, she ripped off his toupee in front of Eric, who up until that point did not even know about his brother balding. Oh my goodness. She snatched yeah. his wig. Ooh, girl. Woo! So two days later is when they actually killed their parents they came home with two shotguns the parents were asleep on the couch they walked in they shot their father in the head and the chest which woke up their mother she tried to run away they shot her in the leg and she slipped in her own blood she was shot several more times in the chest and the face leaving her unrecognizable 
The two were also shot in the kneecaps in an effort to make the murders look like they were connected to organized crime. Ultimately, didn't 12 one, shots. I was going to say, didn't one of them leave the house during the shooting and then go back inside? They both left. Ultimately, 12 shots were fired. And the two of them waited for somebody to call the police. Like, they thought the neighbors would hear the gunshots and call the police. Oh. So they were just kind of waiting to see if somebody would call the cops. And when no one called the cops, they decided that they were going to leave and go to the movies to try and establish an alibi. And then thinking, like, when they came back, by the time they came back, like, the cops would come. But nobody called the cops. So they went, they bought movie tickets, they did whatever for a few hours, and they came back, and their parents were still there, dead on the floor, and then they called 911. They were like, I'm pretty sure if we leave, someone's just going to come and clean up this mess because that's what's happened our entire lives. So we'll just go. And when we come back, the mess will be cleaned up. And they got back and they were like, why didn't anyone clean up this mess? So if you listen to, um, so Lyle is the one who actually called the police and it was very famous, like the call that he made. He was sobbing on the phone saying, you know, somebody shot my parents. They're dead. They're dead. Um, on the phone with the dispatcher. The cops came out to the house. Because the boys appeared to be so distraught, the cops did not check them for anything. The murder weapons were still in their cars. The police did not check their cars. The police did not check their hands for gunshot Shut residue. Shut the fuck up. Which, if they had, they would have found it. Immediately they did it. Done. Okay. Right. No, the cops did not suspect them at first at all. Uh, so even though that stuff later, because of how this was handled, that stuff became routine, regardless of whether or not you thought the people were involved, but because the, they thought there's, you know, this is Beverly Hills, like this kind of thing doesn't happen here. They were not suspected. They didn't check their vehicles and they didn't check their hands for gunshot residue. Wow. Yeah. Within a few weeks of their parents' murders, the two boys were seen partying and lavishly spending money. Lyle bought a Rolex watch, a Porsche, a Chuck Spring Street Cafe, and a Buffalo Wing restaurant in Princeton, New Jersey, while Eric hired a full-time tennis coach and competed in a series of tournaments in Israel. They're they like, eventually We're left grieving the- in our own way. Swipe it. They eventually left the family mansion unoccupied as they decided to live in adjoining condos in nearby Marina Del Rey. They also drove around Los Angeles in their deceased mother's Mercedes-Benz convertible. They dined expensively and went on overseas trips to the Caribbean and London. It's believed that they spent somewhere around $700,000 during the period between the murders and their arrest, which was less than a year. Between August and March. Wow. In 1989. They were living la vida loca. So the police followed many leads, including the organized crime route. Jose did appear to have a few enemies and connections to the mafia that were not entirely unbelievable. But eventually their investigations did lead them to look into the brothers and their exuberant behavior. As Eric appeared to be the more sensitive of the two brothers, police investigators convinced Craig Signorelli, which is a friend of his, to wear a wire and meet Eric for lunch, and where he directly asked him about the murders, and Eric denied having been involved. However, a few days later, Eric confessed to his psychologist, Jerome Ozeal. Uh, Jerome Ozeal began to record their sessions. So 
uh, afterward, the Menendez brothers alleged that Oziel was blackmailing them. And Lyle threatened Oziel's life. Like, if you expose us, like, we'll fucking kill you. We'll kill you like we killed our parents. (sighs) Oziel ultimately confessed to his secretary slash mistress what was going on. And when they broke up, she told the cops. That's how they ultimately found out that the Menendez brothers did it. Yep. God, all of that is just so fucked. These fucking boys. It's so wild. It is wild. Ultimately, the confession tapes were considered admissible because they said that Lyle threatening the the therapist is what broke doctor-patient confidentiality. So the initial confession wasn't enough, but the fact that Lyle threatened him is what made it admissible in court. So the trial, like I said earlier, was really the first of its kind as far as like a widely televised criminal trial of rich people. People, like, this had never really happened before. So people were all over it. It was all over the news. There were, like, sketches about it that I personally think uh, these days uh, were in very poor taste on SNL. Yeah. But, you know, it was 1993. And ultimately, their defense came out that the two of them had been sexually, physically, and emotionally abused since they were young children. They said that the night of the argument when Kitty had ripped the toupee off of Lyle, that Lyle and Eric, like, went to his room, went to Lyle's room, where they were just kind of, like, I didn't know that, like, when he was telling him, like, he didn't know about him being bald, and they were just kind of, like, sharing a lot of what they were going through and what they had been through. And it was at this time that Eric told Lyle that he had been sexually abused by their father since he was eight years old. Like that had not stopped. And at this time, Lyle said that he had been abused by him when he was younger, but it had stopped when he was a teenager. So he thought that it had stopped for Eric as well. And that he didn't realize it was still actively happening to Eric. Mm hmm. The next day after that is when they purchased the shotguns. That was on the 18th. On the 19th, they went on a family fishing trip. It was, by all accounts, very awkward. So they were not the only people on this fishing boat, but primarily the captain is is who's talked out about it. Because he said, like, just the energy of this family was so off and so weird. Like, mm-hmm. it was very palpable and uncomfortable. Ugh. And the boys, Eric and, Ly- and Lyle, said that on this fishing trip, they had the distinct feeling that their parents were planning to kill them. Like, they were in fear that, like, they knew they were being taken out of the will. They knew that, like, their parents hated the image that they were bringing on the family they had these years of abuse and they just had the feeling that like their parents were going to kill them and like i said the captain like he didn't know anything about these people but he said that shit is weird with this family like it's fucking weird Mm -hmm. ultimately the boys i say the boys and i kept telling myself even in my notes i didn't use the words the boys right the menendez brothers They weren't children, but they were very young men, 18 Mm -hmm. and 21, right? You're fucking idiots at that age. I don't care who you are. You're a fucking child. Sure. But they were adult men. Yes. They were tried as adults. So people thought that this 
idea of them, like, you know, saying that they were abused all these years and that that was why that they killed their parents because they were living in fear. People really, like, were not into that defense. Like, people did not buy it until the two of them took the stand and actually testified. So their testimonies really changed a lot of people's minds. Not everyone's. Mm -hmm. But actually seeing them get up on the stand and talk about the things that they experienced and the emotions that they felt, it is really, really powerful testimony. And some people had even said, uh, one woman repeatedly said, like, if they're acting, they're the best actors I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really, really intense. So ultimately... Lyle was arrested in March of 1990, and Eric turned himself in three days later. The story blew up. Everybody's watching it. Ultimately, the two took the stand and described the years of torture at the hands of their father and the apathy of their mother. While many mock this defense, two cousins of the boys took the stand to say that Eric had confided in them about sexual abuse when he was a child. Like, when he was young, he had told other cousins that this was happening so this was not something that like just got made up on the spot that was evidence that this was like years of of abuse the testimony that was uh there was really incredibly scandalous it was emotional and it was very graphic including lyle admitting to repeating some of his own abuses on his younger brother eric it was a turning point for many people watching the case After 25 days of deliberation, there was a hung jury and a mistrial. They could not pick one way or the other definitively, yes, they murdered for money, or no, they were victims. In the second trial, the judge actually banned cameras from the courtroom and also refused to allow any evidence arguing that sexual abuse was a factor in the motive. Uh, With that being thrown out, also the O.J. Simpson trial had just ended in an acquittal, so there was a lot of media attention on, like, how these rich people were being treated by the system. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, the Mendez brothers were totally broke, and they were only defended by public representation. They didn't have money for a real lawyer anymore. Lyle and Eric were both found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. Both brothers also filed for motions for a mistrial, claiming that they had suffered irreversible damage in the penalty phase as a result of possible misconduct and ineffective representation. On July 2nd, 1996, Judge Weisberg sentenced the brothers to life in prison without the possibility of parole and also sentenced them to consecutive sentences for the murders and the charges of conspiracy to commit murder. Mm Mm-hmm. In February of 1998, the California Court of Appeal upheld their murder convictions, and on May 28, 1998, the Supreme Court of California declined to review the case, thus allowing the decision of the appellate court to stand. Both brothers filed habeas corpus petitions for the Supreme Court of California, which were denied in 1999. Having exhausted their appeal remedies in state court, they filed separate habeas corpus petitions in the United States District Court. On March 4, 2003, a magistrate judge recommended the denial of the petitions, and the district court adopted the recommendation. They then decided to appeal to the United States Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit. On September 7, 2005, a three-judge panel denied both their habeas corpus petitions, although Judge Alex Kaczynski stated that the trial judge changed many of his rulings during the two trials. Mm. 
Ultimately, they are still in prison. Mm-hmm. And they were separated for many, many, many years. As in their pretrial detention, the California Department of Corrections separated the brothers and sent them to different prisons. Since they were considered to be maximum security inmates, they were segregated from other prisoners. They remained in separate prisons until February 2018, when Lyle was moved to Mule Creek State Prison in Northern California to Richard Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. There they were housed in separate units until April 4th, 2018, when Lyle was moved to the same housing unit as Eric, reuniting them for the first time since they began serving their sentences nearly 22 years earlier. The brothers burst into tears and hugged each other at their first meeting at the housing unit. The unit where they are housed is reserved for inmates who agree to participate in education and rehabilitation programs without creating disruptions. And that's where they are today. Yep. What are your thoughts? Um, I, I still stand with the way I thought, which is I do believe that they were abused, but I also believe that they premeditated and planned this murder. And so they deserve the verdict that they got because it was in cold blood they killed him while they were sleeping they left they came back they left again and they spent as much money as they fucking could playing around thinking that they're not going to get in trouble um that's i have mixed feelings about it which is that right there's the two theories that they were spoiled sociopaths who killed their parents for the money or that they were victims of years of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. I think it's both. I think it's both. I think they were spoiled, abused sociopaths who killed for the money. But they but were abused. I put them in a place with Dee Dee and Gypsy Blanchard, right? Where, like, they didn't know how to be. They were raised by people who were manipulative and fucked up and they were abused their whole lives and they didn't know how to be. And that's what Gypsy did, right? Like she looked for a boyfriend to kill her mom and she was asking somebody to kill her mom, but her mom was also like torturing her and keeping her in a wheelchair for years. Mm -hmm. So like, yes, is it bad that they murdered and yeah, they had to think about it to get it done, But to a point, like, what else did they know to do? So it's sad. Like, yeah, it's fucked up. And it's terrible that they did that. But also, like, what did they know to do? (laughs) And that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it okay. But I'm also like, a life sentence without the possibility for parole? Do you really think they're going to kill any other people? At this point, now that they've served time in prison, no. But if they had gotten away with their parents' you think murder, if they had gotten away with it, they I might definitely have. think they would have killed again. Maybe not I Eric, but I think Lyle would have killed again. I don't know. Both of them are married now. They're still in prison. Yeah. Lyle's been married twice, but he's been married to the same woman for a long time now. Eric's been married to the same woman since, like, 1999. And, yeah, I... I think if they were the Menendez sisters, it would have been very different. And that's a another weird thing to think about. And I also think that because it was 1990, like the early 90s, like their defense was like a joke to people. And do I think that they should be serving time like to, for their crime? Yes, absolutely. 
do I think that they deserve life or that I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. It's definitely shitty if you compare it to something like an OJ where you're like, that was some bullshit that he got acquitted because he is rich. And so they probably went if harder on these guys. But I don't know. Part of me also is like, if it was girls, I think what seals it for me is the premeditation, the way that they carried it out, the fact that they left and then came back and then got away and then was just like frivolous spending all over the place. All of that, no matter what your gender, to me is incredibly suspicious. Sure. It was. Yeah, it was Period. us. And then I would have been like, it really sucks that you were abused, but you did a really fucked up thing and you know that you did a fucked up thing and you were kind of relishing in it. I don't know. Satan's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I believe they were abused. I definitely think that was true. And I do think, yes, that they should have done time for their crime but i don't know if i think that they should have been given a life sentence with without the possibility of parole out of the two of them from what i know and from like interviews and things and pieces of the testimony that i've seen i would i would give eric time out of prison lyle seems like he's got a fuse that's really short and it's just gonna take one thing to set him off and if there's a shotgun around you're done for i don't know man but yeah so i I learned a lot and I'm, I don't know. I just feel like blown away a little bit. That's how his parents felt. I mean, I knew it. I knew you were going to say (laughs) You set it up and I knock him down. I did. I set it up for you to knock it right out of the park. I did. I did. But yeah, I, I feel all kinds of ways about it, but I, I don't think that they should be in prison for life. And I do think that. The circumstances are a big part of why they were Mm -hmm. and why they were treated the way they were by the media. It's definitely one of those polarizing cases. Oh, absolutely. So drop us a comment and let us know what your theories are. What do you think about the Menendez brothers? (sighs) Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. But that's my story. And I'm saying do it. There it is. (laughs) Ghosts and murdering duos. Ghosts and murdering duos. If you like this podcast, which, I mean, you've stuck with us this long, why not? You should support our show by subscribing to our Patreon. We have $1, $5, $10, and $15 tiers, all with awesome, amazing bonus content and cool shit for you to see. Then we also have merch on our website, deadtimestories with a Z.com. And we also know that you know, there's a panty going on or whatever. And some people is broke as shit. So there are still ways that you can support our show for totally free, like giving us a five-star review on iTunes. That puts us in the algorithm where people like you can find us and we can yell at them to start at the beginning. Start at the beginning! You bitch. That's it. That's it. That's who we are. That's who we are. Well, <laughs> I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this, and has, this been has been... Dead Time Stories. Thank you for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Curtison. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 